Welcome back, everybody, to the Deeper Than Sunday podcast. This podcast exists to be an extension of Grace Church San Diego's teaching on Sunday. Today, we're going to be covering Acts 4, 23 through 37. Very sad news. Nicole could not be with us for recording today. So it's just me and a first-time guest. Who are you? Hello, friends. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors, and I was the preacher this Sunday. Wonderful. And we say this Sunday, which is in the future now, because of uh, scheduling, we're recording this before Jesse even got to preach it. So this should be fun. Cat out of the bag. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's no secrets on the Deeper This Sunday podcast. Um, So Jesse, give me a quick rundown of what the passage was, just like a five second recap. Um, So, and then we'll get started. Yeah. So uh, what had happened previously is Peter and John were arrested. Uh, They're in front of the court. The court said, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They uh, leave. uh, They are able to leave. They go back to their people and tell their people all that happened. And then the people, basically, um, God moves through the people. So today we're talking about your people. We're talking about your people, exactly. What kind of people we are. Okay, should be fun. All right, let's roll the theme song. Okay, this sounds like it's going to be a fun one, Jesse. Um, you broke down the four qualities of the people mm-hmm. that Peter and John went back to. Can you recap those, and what what kind of qualities are we looking for? Yeah, the first quality is uh, they are theological thinkers. Uh, the second quality is they are people who pray for boldness um, to speak the name of Jesus. The third quality um, is that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, or what I like to say, they're animated by the Holy Spirit. And the fourth quality is that they are sacrificial in their generosity. So that first one um, might just turn off like the majority of the people in our church, Mm -hmm. um, theological thinkers. What does it mean to think theologically? Can you just, I mean, you almost got your doctorate. You can give us a definition of theology, can't you? What is that? Uh, it's actually very simple, and I'm hoping to uh, make this palatable and something accessible for all Christians. Um, but theology is made up of two different words, theos and ology. Theos is God, and ology is the study of. And so it's you put those two together, theology is simply the study of God. You can uh, extend that to anthropology, uh, for example, which is uh, the study. Anthro means man, and so it's just simply the study of of people, of human beings. So when I think of study, I think of somebody in a library somewhere looking yeah. through books, old dusty books, or like Gandalf going down mm-hmm. and figuring out what this ring thing is about. What does it mean to study God? Yeah, uh, great question. So the these people, Peter and John's people are what I think are new believers. They had just become Christians just recently. So uh, I did the math. 98% of them are new believers, but they uh, have a theological, uh, an understanding of God by what they talk about. Um, and, And so I lay out that there's two ways to know God. The first way is we make it up. We as human beings just try and figure out who God is based on our feelings, based on the circumstances, based on what we can observe. And lots of people all throughout time try and say, this is who God is based on what I think and my experience. That I would suggest is not a great way. The other way, the second way to know God is by God saying, this is who I am. It's by God's revelation. It's, it's God saying, I'm, I'm going, going to tell, if you want to know who I am, you can't know. Don't try and make it up. I'm going to tell you who I am, which is captured in the Bible. And so the way that we uh, practice theology, the study of God, is by the specific revelation of God in the Bible. And so we study the Bible. And so there's theologians who spend all that time in the library, like you were talking about in, you know, in seminary and, and studying God, systematic theology. But I'm not saying that I am saying that I do believe that all Christians should be theologians in working out who the Bible 
teaches God is. I do believe that that is for all people, that Christians should see themselves as theological thinkers. To some degree, okay, this is going to be a hot take. Isn't everything that we have thought about God just us making it up because of our (laughs) cultural uh, lens that we're looking through things? Or not even cultural lens, but like, because I'm a man, I'm going to read the Bible like this, and a woman Mm -hmm. would read the Bible like this, or African-American or white or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. How do we know Mm -hmm. that what we're studying about God is God's true nature? Yeah, that's great. Uh, In the past uh, podcast, you guys have talked about hermeneutics, but uh, I would suggest that um, don't assume your initial reading of the Bible is going to be interpreting it correctly. Uh, and, And so there is some work of understanding the context that the Bible was written in. And and that's part of learning to think theologically. And so it's not just as simple as, hey, read your Bible. And there's a bit of a process that goes into it. But we all are historically conditioned by our environment and our household and our religious upbringing. And so we have bias. And our trauma. And our trauma. And we have um, our pain and our strengths and our weaknesses that we, uh, that filters, that are create lenses that we wear often unconsciously as we read the Bible. And so part of the journey of being a theological thinker is identifying our bias and our trauma and all of those things that we can tend to read into the text. Yeah. You might need approval from the elders to answer this question. Uh, But it's something I, I think about a lot. If you and I and some other person, completely different people, all read the Bible, all mm-hmm. were completely devoted to Jesus, had our quiet time, was was alone with the Lord mm-hmm. often, listened to his voice, filled with the Spirit, can we come to different but all true interpretations of who God is and what God's plan is? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think we will certainly come up with our own interpretations However, um, I'm borrowing from How to Read the Bible from All It's Worth, a book written by Gordon Fee and Stewart, and they say that the um, the central uh, guiding principle to interpret Scripture correctly is to understand the author's intended meaning of the text. And so, um, the, really, the thing that we need to do, the work that theological thinkers need to do is to first begin to understand what did the author intend to mean in what they wrote. Um, And from that point, I think you will get much closer in the diversity of people reading the Bible. They will do a better job of understanding and interpreting the scriptures through their personal experience, but get closer to what is true if you first do that. Yeah. And just to remind the audience, these four qualities, this first one being um, a studier of God, like theologically minded, Mm -hmm. um, these are things that we should do. So I think about this a lot and like, I want to clarify what, what is my actual role in discovering God? Is it only for me or at some point do I need to listen to those wiser than me that have put more time in it to it? Or can I come up with my own picture of God using the the methodology that you laid out can i do it like or do i need tim keller to tell me right like who who is the holder of the image of god yes well the whole idea of the sermon is find your people and so one of the points that i make in this first point is that we need to do this in community we need to be working out our theology and our belief in god and our in community with other people. I talk about we need to borrow the faith of other people who are Mm. more mature than us because we don't have enough faith um, and a number of ideas. But yes, uh, part of the larger cloud of witnesses that the author of Hebrews talks about, um, this cloud of witnesses being the church, um, is that we can read books and listen to podcasts and sermons and also our community local body of believers um, finding our people um, to be forming and shaping our belief in God. When I read a book, I don't know the author, but I see that author as someone who is discipling me in the way of Jesus. Yeah. I, 
I guess what I want, and I'm, this is a theme of this podcast of me wanting an, a simple straight answer. Um, and maybe there's not one, but if three people read the Bible, dedicate themselves to God and come to three different conclusions of God's nature mm-hmm. in the end of the day, are two of them wrong and one of them right? Or can individuals have a different view of God and, and live in community with each other? Like, yeah, you know, take any of the debates that, yeah. you know, we talked about women, women in ministry, uh-huh. uh, marijuana use, alcohol uh-huh. use, um, who can be an elder? What are the qualifications? All these different things. Yeah. Um, is there only one way or are there multiple ways and flesh that out? Cause I think that could get dangerous. If yeah. You... I, uh, what comes to mind is different levels of belief that there's, and I've heard this before that on the top level is convictions. And then the next tier down is beliefs. And then the next tier down below that is, uh, opinions. And so conviction level is like what the decide, what the apostles would die for. Like they would go to the wall and that is just the, the core, um, doctrines, And then below that are beliefs. Like I have beliefs and you have beliefs based on our interpretation of scripture. And we can be in fellowship with each other um, and have differing beliefs on certain things. Um, And it's their informed beliefs based on the Bible. And then below that are opinions. Like I have no study. I don't know anything. I just, this is my opinion about the topic without any kind of information. And so I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And I think the problem may be, might come when the opinions start to leak into the conviction Mm -hmm. where a lot of people have opinions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Josh has referred to it as culturally thick, but theologically thin. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I guess we should, I guess the takeaway for this then is to maybe hold our theology softly, a little Mm -hmm. more loosely and allow people to speak into it. Is that kind of what you're saying? I think the essence of being a disciple is a learner. Uh, someone who is a lifelong learner and to um, be uh, adamant or um, dogmatic about your theology um, is um, when I first took my first theology class in seminary, I read a book called a primer on theology or something like that was the name of the book. And it was essentially calling these new seminary students who want to know God to humble yourself, humble yourself. Because even as you study systematic theology, the idea of trying to systematize God is a joke, right? And so we as humans do our best to try and clarify and define God. But even that so often we need to do with a light and open hand and be gracious to each other as we're all trying to figure out our theology. And so, yes, being dogmatic about it, except for maybe a few things, um, I think is a, a, a mature perspective. Yeah. Um, I just imagine this, what is it up to 5,000 people now at this mm-hmm. point in acts men, 5,000 men, 5,000 men and their families probably. Right. Mm-hmm. So here's my question. If they're in that time and this applies to today, if we're talking convictional level stuff mm-hmm. where you have a different vision of God mm-hmm. than let's say the elders and the preaching team at your church, mm-hmm. do you leave the church or is there space for varying ideas about God to commune with one another and to live out their faith, even though they disagree. I think the church in my view is at its best when we have people who love Jesus are committed to, um, a high value of scripture with a, um, uh, with a range of interpretations on how to work this out in practice, uh, at the table together that I value that I want, I want to be a part of a a seminary or a part of a church that um, values different perspectives and takes on scripture. And we can uh, listen to each other and be sharpened by each other. Uh, I don't want to be in a church of an echo chamber. Um, And so, yes, I, you know, that I would teach the varying perspectives and interpretations on a particular theological point and then invite people to wrestle with it themselves. Yeah. I think if you look throughout church history, even today, um, I'm kind of like an anti-power centrality guy. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at like the certain churches, certain denominations, uh, and then specific churches and leaders, when all the power is centered at the top, 
whether it be one man or a group of elders, that person has probably chosen themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and it can be dangerous. So I guess my question for our church at grace, are there any avenues for the elders, which now includes you as the the pastors and Mm -hmm. and the non-staff elders, are there any avenues for the elders to listen to the congregation as a whole or are all the decisions about what we believe made in those meetings and there's no input at all? Elders at gracesd.com. <laughs> Email them. Email them. Email them. Are, they, are you saying they listen? Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, our elders love our church. Our elders love our people. Um, they uh, value the input um, of our people and um, I disagree. And, uh, when it comes to some things with our own elders and we ha- we walk in that tension of, of a disagreement, but unity, diversity and unity as, as, um, and, and so yes, the elders in my experience, um, uh, joyfully welcome, um, uh, the congregation's input and thoughts. And there are specific moments, um, like for example, the membership, um, um, dinners and the membership, uh, when you want to become a member where there are specific places that people can share with the elders. Yeah, that's great. That's good to hear that we're not one of those churches that it's just one person calling the shots and yeah, yeah that I, I think that can be dangerous. So wonderful. Okay, cool. I knew we'd spend a lot of time there cause it's fun. Theology is <laughs> fun. Uh, okay. Second one. What was the second mark? Of yeah. That? Boldness in uh, proclaiming Jesus is uh, one way to put it. So that that's what they ask for. Yeah. They, um, Peter and John are told, stop talking in the name of Jesus. And then the people ask God to give them boldness in proclaiming the name of Jesus. And so they're doubling down. And, and so in the sermon, you'll hear me say, I think in my observation of Christians, and this is general, this is not specific. Um, Christians don't really know Jesus that well. Mm. And I'm sorry and not sorry. And, and one of my ways of kind of uh, diagnosing that is that I like to often ask Christians, um, tell me one of your favorite moments in the life of Jesus that has shaped your life um, in the gospels specifically, like what's a story. And I can't tell you how many times I just get blank stares or they'll say the cross or they'll say the cross <laughs> or they'll like, tell me, Oh yeah. You know, that one story. Oh, who was it? I, Oh, there was like a, um, a woman at a well. Yeah, that was awesome. And, and I can just tell that Christians just don't know Jesus and the stories and the teachings from the gospels. And really the gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptics, which mean they're very similar. And so if we were just to take uh, Luke and John, just two books of the Bible and say, how much do Christians soak in these texts and let them work their way into your bones and into your soul. And I say in the sermon, like, I believe that Christians know the story of Michael Scott and Jim and Pam and Ross and Rachel better than they know the story of Jesus. Uh, We don't know uh, the stories of Jesus and how he interacts with the um, man with the withered hand and the paralytic and Peter and the woman that was bleeding and the woman caught in adultery and and the woman that gives her two widow's mites. And I could just go, on the centurion and the rich ruler and all of these stories that we just don't know them and they haven't shaped us. And I think that if we were to know these stories, our boldness in sharing Jesus wouldn't come across as mean or overbearing. It would come across as sharing Jesus authentically to people that don't know him just by sharing these stories and how they've impacted our life. And the authenticity comes because when you learn about Jesus, who he was, you fall in love with him. You fall in love with him. Like, what a character. It's not this kind of conceptual, esoteric idea of Jesus, but it truly is an embodied Jesus. Like my wife, I love her because I've shared so many moments with her. You know, just all of the moments that we've shared, I can get specific about those. We need to have specific 
moments with Jesus in the Gospels that have formed and shaped us, where we sit in these stories and the teachings, um, and we just fall in love with Jesus in them. Yeah. I think the uh, popular media examples that you gave, like with The Office, mm-hmm. it's like we do spend, and, and I'm, I, I don't like calling people out for watching TV. Like, I love TV. I'm, I watch TV, no judgment. It's like... Stories, I think, are so impactful for us. And when a story lands on us, then you're going to tell everybody about it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I love the idea of treating the Gospels as if it's a story like we would watch on Netflix. Like, yes. Just read it and read it and fall in love and fall in love. And like you said, then the, the sharing comes naturally. Like, yes. why wouldn't you share that? Yes. Yeah. Yep. I have more to say, but I, we can say move. It. We can move say on. It. Well, we, I, you we know, we, we share boldly things all the time. We share boldly with people what our vacations that we're going to go on and mm-hmm. uh, how cute our kids are and how much we love, uh, you know, the dish that was pl- set before us that we post on social media. And so we boldly share things that we love with people all the time. We're evangelists for things um, of things that we love um, all the time. Sometimes it's as simple as the weather we talk about that we love. Uh, and, and I think that um, an invitation to, 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 to truly love Jesus and, in these stories is something that the church uh, needs to be invited into. Yeah. I think uh, maybe one way we fight against that is to fight against consumerism. Yes. Because I think a lot of Christians are cashing their get out of hell free card. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's all about, well, I just want to be taken care of. And so then it doesn't matter who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. As long as we do the, you said the prayer when you're eight years old, Mm -hmm. you got baptized when you're 12 and then you go to church every Sunday, but there's never any, there's no love affair. There's no, um, adoration for this Jesus character who is God. So I think the chosen is a, is, has really helped people in this space. I talk to people all the time who just love the chosen series because it helped Jesus become real for them embodied. They see, uh, these stories come to life. And so, um, I think that's great. And I think that's, um, a great thing that God is doing, but I think we also need to learn how to have a similar love for Jesus in the gospels specifically that, the third point is the Holy spirit that I do think that the Holy spirit needs to illuminate this within us because often we read the gospels and we're like, I don't get it. It's stale. It's distant. I don't, I'm bored. Like, and so I think we do need to learn how to do this. And the gospels are the most interesting books in the Bible. So if you're not (laughs) interested by the gospels, (laughs) don't even try the old Testament. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So we're talking about marks of, uh, Good church people, right? Yeah. People who can be used for God. Yeah. So theology, uh, study God, um, boldness to share what you learned about Jesus. Yes. And then being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you how do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Uh, that is a great question. So you don't know, do you? You're in the sermon, well, <laughs> so what happens in the text is that the people um, are asking, they're praying, they they ask God to give them boldness to proclaim Jesus. And then um, they stop praying an earthquake happens and then they are all, and it says all 5,000 in my imagination, plus, you know, women and children are filled with the Holy spirit. Now, uh, Luke who wrote acts loves this word fill. He uses it 22 out of the 25 times in the new Testament and nine of those times are in the book of Acts, this idea of being filled. And uh, we see that people are filled with uh, joy and, and, um, and amazement and jealousy throughout Acts using this word. Um, but five times uh, it says that p- people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in the sermon, I make a distinction between being baptized in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I use the snow globe to, uh, as a metaphor, an illustration to help break this down. Essentially, 
being baptized in the Holy Spirit is what happens when you believe and receive Christ into your life. You um, are born again into the family of God. You are become his son and daughter, which you previously were not. And you are regenerated, regenerated by the, by the Holy Spirit coming into your life, making your soul come alive. Uh, and in that moment, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit. And so to use the um, snow globe metaphor, that is when you as the snow, you are the snow globe. When you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you get the sprinkles in the snow globe. That happens one time. And from that point on, you will not ever get any more sprinkles in your snow globe. That is being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It happens one time. In contrast to being filled with the Spirit um, is what we see happening in the life of the church and individuals and acts. People um, in particular moments, we see the Holy Spirit coming and filling them to give them power and boldness and, and, and to be able to have wisdom and beyond their own capacity, Just their show, own capabilities. Show the fruit, right? That's how we know the spirit is there because of the fruit. The, the fruit, exactly. They're doing things that are beyond their own abilities. And that is something that is an ongoing work in the life of a believer, that every day we can say, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit. Animate my life. And any moment that I have um, is an invitation. That is not asking for more of the Holy Spirit. It's asking for God to shake the snow globe of the Holy spirit that's in us, the sprinkles to, to come. They've settled on the bottom because we've just haven't been allowing the Holy spirit to animate our lives. But then we say, God, fill me, shake up my snow globe so that it animates all of my life so that I can live in with, in a way that I can't without you. What, um, what do we make of a non-believer producing fruit of the spirit? Yeah. Uh, we're, People, there are non-Christians who live a life that are so much better than Christians. They're like, they got the kingdom down. They just don't call it the kingdom. Exactly. So uh, some Christians live like Jesus and other Christians don't live like Jesus. And then there's many non-Christians that that live with the quote unquote fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and even just the acts of justice and mercy and caring for the poor. And so you can live with the qualities of Jesus without actually knowing Jesus, but that doesn't make you saved. That doesn't make you a yeah. Christian. You will, when you perform those acts outside of the spirit, you will never be filled. Yeah. Not filled with the spirit, but filled um, emotionally and the joy like that. It doesn't last unless it's rooted in Jesus. Is that right? Well, I think that uh, our salvation is separate from our behavior in some ways. And in some ways they're, they're integrated. They should be. But you can be saved and have the sprinkles at the bottom and you... Um, are an awful person and you will go to heaven based on God's grace alone. I'm yeah. just, you know, that is yeah. God's amazing grace. Yeah. So I guess my question is the non-saved and the saved person, both producing work, quote unquote, works of the spirit. Yeah. Is it someone who doesn't give God credit for that? Who isn't saved? Is that the spirit working through them? Or is that just, they happen to be joyful and it had nothing to do with God? That's a great question. I think of this all the time. It's like, anytime I do something good, I'm like, well, that wasn't me. That was the spirit working right. through me. If I see somebody outside the church yes. or outside God doing something good, is God working through that person Yeah, and just hasn't saved them? Or Yeah, that's a great question. We do see God working and moving through non-Christians or non-believers, Old and New Testament. So yes. Yeah. And I would say from a missiological standpoint, which is the study of the mission of God, um, uh, we, there's a great book called God's wider presence where he is essentially, um, doing a survey and helping shape that God is moving in culture and society and nations and people groups all throughout the world and throughout time, uh, that have not ever heard the explicit gospel and, and the, the, you know, the, the Bible and that God moves throughout the world. And we see this in Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to the Areopolis in, in Athens and he's 
pointing out how God is, uh, they're getting a sense of God, uh, but he, they need some more clarity about that. Yeah. So I can go on and on about this stuff, no, but I, I don't know it. if that's what you're talking oh about. Gosh, like God is moving about. even in spite of us, uh, not even giving God the direct credit. So an easy way to say it, if, if something kingdom like happens, mm-hmm. that is God, nothing good happens outside of God. Going back to the theological thinkers, what we see the people saying is that God is working sovereignly. We didn't get into this. God is working sovereignly without, with, even through the enemies of God, God is working through them. <laughs> they don't even know that, that God is using them, but God is using them. And so, yes, God uses, um, God is sovereignly working. Yeah. That's good answer. I, I, yeah. I, that, I mean, who, who knows, right? Part of we my uh, part of my attempt when I'm talking to people about Jesus is to I'm looking for ways that God is at work in their life. Yeah. When I'm talking to a non-Christian, uh, I think a good evangelist and a good missionary is is looking for the ways that God has put in them his image. His image is in them. Uh, he, they, they have a sense. R- Romans two says that their conscience bears witness to the reality of God, even their conscience. And so we can look at non-Christians and say, God has made them and has given them qualities and strengths and weaknesses and culture that I can identify God in you yeah. and call that out. Mm, that's good. Okay, cool. So we're going over these because we want to be, we want to have these four qualities, right? So theology, uh, boldness to share Jesus. Full, filling. Uh, yeah. Uh, Can I say one more thing about the filling? Yeah, I'm going to stay here, but okay, yeah, I okay, hear. good. Yeah. No, then I'll let you go. Well, here's my question about being filled with the Holy Spirit. The other two are choices that I make. Mm. Uh, being theo- theologically minded, boldness and sharing, and then we haven't gotten to generosity yet, but those are all choices. Is being filled with the Holy Spirit a choice or does the Holy Spirit come when it wants? Uh, I talk about Ephesians. I believe it's Ephesians 5 off the top of my head. And Paul says, he commands, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But this is in contrast to kind of the ways of sin and the flesh. And so he's comparing the two. And I do think that uh, when we are actively sinning or even not even aware of it, that we are um, grieving the Holy Spirit, that we are causing the flakes of the Holy Spirit to settle at the Mm -hmm. bottom of our soul, which is the snow globe. Um, And so I do think that we can have the Holy Spirit, but keep the Holy Spirit dormant and at arm's distance, and we're not listening to the voice of God yeah. versus actively pursuing God and asking God to to, to animate to, to for the Holy Spirit to come and fill up our lives, that there is an active part in it. And the people ask, they pray, and then God fills them with the Spirit. And so I think that we see in the text that there is some activity on their part. Yeah, I think that I have mistakenly associated the spirit mm-hmm. with a warm, fuzzy feeling. Mm. And so I think that's why I ask the question so often is, can we activate the spirit? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I'm like, God, spirit, come work in my life, work in my life. And then I'm just sitting there in front of my Bible like I was before I asked and nothing seems to have changed. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying or asking you is being filled with the spirit doesn't mean you feel all warm and fuzzy and on yeah. top of the world and powerful. Yeah. But what does it mean? What does being filled with the spirit look like? Well, if you, uh, do a study on the Holy spirit, uh, especially through the book of acts, which is f- a phenomenal study to uh, in and of itself. Um, you will see that the Holy spirit is actively trying to reveal Jesus evangelistically to the world. And so, part of you being people, not just you, but us um, being in alignment with the Holy Spirit is by uh, actively um, sharing Jesus with the world. That is what the work of the Spirit, not the only thing, but a primary job the Holy Spirit is trying to do. Uh, And so if you go share Jesus with a non-Christian, watch the Holy Spirit 
yeah. begin to bubble up inside of you and that your need for the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, try and advance the kingdom of God in any practical, real way beyond just your own quiet time Bible study by yourself. Uh, actively work to advance the kingdom of God and you, I imagine, and I've experienced this in my life, will begin to see the the need, your need for the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit coming. And so part of it is I wonder if we in our consumeristic, isolated Christian Christianity that we've contrived um, are actually not in alignment with the work of the Spirit. And so that no wonder you're not feeling the power of the Spirit because you're not in what the Spirit's purpose yeah. is trying to do. I think that that's such a Beautiful picture. So I'm going to reiterate what I just heard. You don't ask for the spirit and then sit around and wait for your body to magically start doing something. Mm -hmm. You go do the best thing that you can think of Mm -hmm. to further the kingdom. And then the spirit comes along and does the work. You've got to actually move and do something. Yes. Uh, How that all works itself out, I don't know. The chicken or the egg. But I do believe um, as we put our faith in what we see the Bible calling us to and what God calling us to, as in Acts 1-8, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Just, Just do that and then watch the spirit move. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, I, we didn't get into go ahead. What one spicy say? point that I think is relevant for the the filling versus baptism we of the like Holy spicy. Spirit. We love it. Yeah, I know. I like this stuff. Um, there is this idea in Christianity and Christendom that you um, need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit at some future point after being saved. Mm. And, and I think that that's wrong. And, um, I think that that's bad theology. Um, I, I believe that the baptism of the Holy spirit happens at the moment that you're saved. Um, and so you will hear that there's multiple baptisms, like a baptism in water and then a baptism in Jesus and then a baptism in the Holy spirit. And those are separate things. Um, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear this often in churches that are like, Oh, you're a Christian, but you haven't, you're missing the Holy Spirit or you're missing the gift of tongues or those kinds of things. And, and I think that, um, they get that from particular moments in the book of Acts, but we know that the narrative is not normative. And so there are moments where you can get that. Um, but there's a reason why those moments are happening in, for example, with the centurion in Acts chapter 10. Um, but that is not normative. What is prescriptive theologically is that you, um, when you're saved, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, not at some future point that some, that some people will try and convince you is you still need that. So you said several times just now when you're saved. Yes. What is that the Lord's, the sinner's prayer? Is that a decision you make in your head? Yeah. Um, obviously we're not the ones who save ourselves totally, but what is our part in getting saved? Uh, faith. It is faith in Jesus. So that faith of what we, uh, God, we hear that so often. Sure. Just have faith, have faith in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I can just point you to passages of scripture that point to that. Like Roman says, if you believe in your, in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. Like for example, but, um, I don't know who those people are. Because the fruit can look all kinds of different ways. And so we cannot truly judge who are saved and who are not. Um, uh, Only God knows. But what it takes for a person to be saved is simple faith in a belief in who Jesus is and what he's done. That's my best definition of the gospel is who Jesus is and what he's done. But it, does it also, is there another part or am I adding to the gospel that says I have to have faith that what Jesus did mm-hmm. is the right way to live and follow it? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, James will tell us, you show me your, your faith. I, I'll show you my works or you show, uh, basically he says, I'm trying to summarize, you can't be saved without works is kind of how James presents because it. Because when you put faith in Jesus, yeah. you are naturally going to do what he did because it's the best way totally to flourish. Absolutely. And that is, I, I think it, it, it's questionable if you truly are saved, if you're not, um, living like Jesus, but my, um, 
belief in the grace of God is that you can be saved by simple faith and not be living it out and you're still saved. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a, obviously a tension there. Yeah. It's the workers in the field, right? It's the, the, the worker who comes at nine and noon and the end yeah. of the day, they all make it to heaven yes. regardless of their fruit. So we're not, of course we're not judged on, yeah, God, that's so hard. Cause you hear like John Piper talk about, you'll know you're saved at the end of your life, whether or not you had fruit. That's convicting. Totally. It's scary. From a, yeah. like, cause we've, we've, we've taught grace so much, yeah. so much. I grew up not hearing about grace at all. It was all yeah. works, 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 yeah. works. Now it's all grace, grace, grace. What, oh man, what do we do, Jesse? Matthew seven, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, did I not do all of these wonderful things in the name of Jesus? And Jesus will look at me and say, uh, depart from me. I never knew you. And so, um, yes, on one hand, the works uh, are significant, but if I think that those works are what get me saved, then um, Jesus may look at me in the eye and say, I never knew you and you never knew me. And so can we, we're just sparring. God, <laughs> we're yeah. just going back okay. and forth. Okay, so let's try, to, let's try to state it in a clear way. Uh-huh. The works are not what save you. Yep. But when you have faith in Jesus, mm-hmm. you will, without a doubt, and should produce works but you have the knowledge that those works don't save you. Yep. Only what Jesus did save you, saves you. I think the, uh, so I'll push, James would approve of that. I'll push back on what you say then, that if you are saved at a young age and produce no works your whole life, you were never saved. Uh, that's between you and God. Yeah. It's in your brain. It's in your brain. And maybe you never knew him. Because I'm talking about know him relationally and yeah. personally. Yeah. So there's a, I was listening to a podcast a few years back. There's a comedian, uh, Pete Holmes. He's a Christian, but kind of like a universalist too. He just mm-hmm. has, he's a comedian. So he has a funny take on things. Mm-hmm. And he was just kind of making fun of, I think what we, a lot of us grew up with of once you make that decision of faith, you're set for life in your heaven. And it's like, mm-hmm. what's going to happen when we die? God's going to like, work through the soup of our brain and like come up with that one moment where we said yes to Jesus and like, okay, was that it? And it was like, it was just kind of bringing to light the, the consumerist nature of most of our faiths or a lot of our faiths that says, as long as I say this prayer, I'm good. Yeah. But it's more than that. It is. The moment of regeneration is you are in Christ. You are not your own. You are actually um, adopted into Christ. Um, and so you, um, your soul has been made alive. And from that point, you are, you're essentially living forever. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's not just praying a prayer and you, you move on. I mean, when there is the real authentic faith, you um, are eternally made alive. And um, that's a big deal. There's, I can give you 10 uh, ways that the Bible communicates what happens at the moment that you are saved. Mm. Um, and all of those things are happening at that moment. Um, it's a significant moment. And so it's not to be taken lightly, but that moment is by faith alone. Yeah. It makes sense to me. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's hard to share it. And like, I, it's fully locked into me. I get it. Sure. Um, but yeah, we could talk all day. So let's go to the fourth, fourth point, the fourth yep. point, uh, generosity. Mm-hmm. Why, why is it necessary that we're generous to be used in the church? Uh, I see in the text and believe that, um, God, the kingdom of God, under the reign of Jesus is that no people are in need and everyone is taken care of. And I don't mean this politically. Um, Cause you know, I'm going to make it political. Economically. I mean that this is the natural homeostasis. This is the natural outcome of those who are living, who are wanting the kingdom of God to be here on earth. And this is where we are going as, uh, as, as a, as a a new humanity is that all needs will be taken care of. And it comes out of a larger framework that I, that a proper theology, that everything that I have is not mine. I think I earned my degree in college. 
I think I earned my way to this job. I think I earned my way to save up in the house that I have. That's bad theology. <laughs> uh, I Who gave me my brain to even study? Who gave me the ability to be born in the city and the state that I am? Who gave me en- the resources that I have accumulated? It's not mine. It's all God's. Yeah. It is all a gift. And so when I have a good theology of, of, of everything is gift to be stewarded, then it sets me free from the need to hoard and the ability to use it for the things that God has called me to. Yeah. I think one way that maybe the progressives or the left, um, I don't know, they, they use these, the, the church in acts to say, Oh, we should all be communist. Right. They were communists. Right. That's just what they were. There was, I have a buddy who says Jesus was a communist. Yeah. And he was, (laughs) that was before the red scare. Sure. (laughs) Communism was bad because there's bad leaders and et cetera. We won't get into that. Uh, but then you look up, I just looked it up. I don't know this off the top of my head. I'm not that uh, scholarly. Mm. But Second uh, Thessalonians 3, Paul says, uh, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Mm. And so I think um, my question is, how do we hold those two in conjunction? That, yeah. yeah, everybody should work, but also if you can't work or if, let's bring it to modern day. Let's say you are, Oh man, should we do this? I guess we should. Let's do it. If you are a part of a culture who Mm -hmm. has been systematically oppressed Mm -hmm. in a specific country, Mm -hmm. I don't have to say what country and I don't have to say what culture, but we all know what I'm talking about. What is the Christian's duty to make sure that those people are taken care of? I love talking about God's heart for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the Migrant, (laughs) the migrant, uh, the immigrant, um, the sojourner among you. And uh, if you don't have God's heart for those uh, marginal, marginalized people, and those were some of the most marginalized in that time and space, but that's not to say that those are the same kinds of marginalized people in our time and space. And so I think you can extend that to uh, any marginalized people in your time and space. And so if you don't have a value for um, those with means and resources and privilege, may I say, uh, to um, care for those that are less privileged or marginalized uh, minorities, I think that you... I would invite you to go back to read uh, the prophets, mm. to read uh, Acts chapter four, and to read the gospels, and to just read the Bible with a sense of God's invitation for Christians to care about justice. And I would say not just justice individually, but may I say even collectively in a social justice uh, framework, that that is... Um, I and as I say that, that has nothing to do with our current cultural climate. That has nothing to do with politics or economic system. I was an economics major at UCSD. I get capitalism and I get communism and socialism. I've studied it. I know how it all works. This has nothing to do with that. This has everything to do with what who God is, what He has taught us who he has taught us to be and what it means to live in this world that when Christians are living this way, uh, the government systems won't have to even worry about it because we're taking care of it. Yeah. It's beautiful. I can go on. (laughs) Yeah. I I think, uh, probably pushback we could receive from Uh saying all this is if you look at Acts four, it seems like they are taking care of each other. Yeah just the church. Mm-hmm. And so then my rebuttal to that is like, why don't we have the minorities and the sojourner and the widows in our church? It seems like we have done a really good job of othering those people. Yeah. And they, they're always going to be the homeless on the street or they're always going to be the families separated at the border or they're always going to be the black family who can't get a loan for a house, Yeah, but they're not in our church. So they, they're like, they're a project, not a part of the family. And so I think what maybe we can call us to do, mm-hmm. tell me if I'm wrong, Yeah, is make those people part of the family. Yeah. And then of course we're going to share with them. We would share our lawnmower with somebody that went to our church mm-hmm. at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. But if somebody on the street asked us to borrow our lawnmower, mm. we're going to uh, maybe not, right? Yeah. yeah. I, am, I, am I getting somewhere? Yeah. I mean, it says that... Um, 
uh, we've seen this this pattern twice now in Acts two and now Acts four that um, the people were being the Christians were being generous and then they were added to their number and so. Uh, which one came first? I'm not sure, but we see that as they're being generous with each other, that, that people are coming to faith. And so I think belonging before you believe is absolutely appropriate. So you can belong in our house churches and our church and in all of our spaces, uh, you can belong, um, and experience it and experience God and before you even believe. And so, yes, uh, we will have all kinds of different people who don't believe, and we can go on and on about who those people are, um, in our church spaces and they, and we will defend them and protect them and make sure that they don't feel judged uh, in our spaces. That is what Jesus did for countless people is he went to bat. He defended them to both that they belong there when the religious figures were judging that they were there. And they even thought Jesus was a, uh, Jesus was a sinner because of his association with those people. And he can care less what they thought of him he deeply loved these people and he defended that they, they belong, they, they deserve to belong just like anyone else. And, you know, I can go on and on about this, but like the situation in the early church was the Jew and the Gentile. You could not get any more different of people. The Jews were these conservative rule following. They had 600 laws that they had to follow that were very conservative in their laws. If you were to even get into like the sexual laws, like specifically, the Gentile, these Roman, Greco-Roman Gentiles were... Wine drinking, orgy attending, I, You think people. that, and I hear people say this, that the, the sexual um, ethic of our day, secular humanistic sexual ethic is like worse than we've ever seen. And I kindly, gently push back and be like, you don't know the Greco-Roman context uh, world. It was actually worse than our world. And... And, and these are, and these are new believers in the church that are, that, that Paul is trying to bring these two polarized, may I say progressive and, and, you know, and, conservative. and, and conservative people. He's trying to bring them together and unify them, uh, in the same ecclesiological church space. And that is hard to do then. And it's hard to do now. Mm. So then what's the key to being generous? What What is going to convict you to be generous? What worldview do you have to have to give away your stuff? Do likewise. Yeah. Do likewise. God has been generous to you. You do it for others. You don't earn, you don't, you don't deserve your salvation. You don't deserve the gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't deserve, uh, we don't deserve our life. We don't deserve any of it, but God has generously given it. And, and we need to first be grateful for what we, for what God has given us. And then we just simply extend that to others as well. Beautiful. And for you listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have questions, we want to hear them uh, podcast at gracesd.com. Look at our Instagram story. You can drop questions in there on Sundays. We always have a story uh, for that. And other than that, we will see you guys next week. Bye.